You're tuning in to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Libby Emmons, a senior editor at the Post Millennial and a senior contributor for The Federalist. Since 2018, she has written for Quillette, The New York Post, Spectator US, Unheard Narratively, The American Conservative, and Arc Digital, among others. I welcome Libby Emmons to Savage Minds. Everything seems to have shifted with coronavirus, politically, yes. mediatically, um, crazily. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you know, I follow, I mean, you're my editor as well, but I follow you on Twitter. I follow a lot of other writers on Twitter because what has struck me as someone who's definitely like, I'm a leftist, but I'm constantly like looking at my, over my shoulder at this weird world that we're living in, largely due to the call-out culture, which has morphed into something else. The culture wars definitely became mainstreamed and then went for blood. And I think that that's true starting, um, you know, I think everything took a rather nasty turn starting of course, May 25th, uh, which is when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis. Um, and that ushered in a whole new way for people to express their maddening anger at how infantilized we have become as a society. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what makes you say infantilized? I mean, I completely agree with you, but there are people who will take issue with that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's been such a crazy year, right? And it's almost a full year. March 16th marks the, uh, will mark the day that um, New York City began its lockdown. Uh, of which we are still not out. Um, and we could talk more about that. That's when schools closed. It was announced that schools would not be open March 16th. It was announced, you know, we started to get the idea that this was going to be this massive illness. There was the modeling out of the UK that like, you know, 500 bazillion million people were gonna die. It was all very terrifying, right? It was very terrifying. And we had this, uh, this ask from the government to um, not overwhelm the hospitals, right? So we were all kind of like, that makes a lot of sense. We have this plague, we don't have a cure. We don't know the full effects of the virus on individuals. We don't have a lot of good research. Much of it comes out of China, uh, perpetrated then by the World Health Organization. And it wasn't entirely clear if we were getting the accurate picture because you tend not to get the accurate picture from you know, a dictatorial nation. That's usually something you can count on is that it's wrong information. So here we were terrified, not knowing what's gonna happen, figuring everyone was gonna die. And the least we could do was not try to die all at once. So we flattened this curve. Anyway, I went to my mom's house and <laughs> um, uh, hung out with her for a while because I thought on top of everything else, she's an older lady and she's not going to see any people for a really long time. If something happens to her, I want to be able to take care of her or whatever. So we're down there. It's two weeks, two weeks morphs. Eventually there we are. And like, it's six weeks. And I'm just like, we got to get out of here. You know, my son's away from his dad. I can't really coexist with my mother. Um, that that had so many of its own historical problems that just made that ineffective. So we decided to head home. We head home like sort of early to mid-May. The city is still locked down, but we're starting to see maybe people coming out. Spring in New York is spectacular. All the women dress up and look amazing. You know, it's like um, the risk of sounding sexist. You know, it's pretty girl season in New York in the spring. Uh, everybody's happy. It's a great time. So everything, you know, it started to seem like things were going to open up and it was exciting. May 24th, I went to, I live in Brooklyn. I went to Manhattan with um, my family and we were walking around. We walked up Broadway and we were like, oh my goodness, the city looks like it's going to open. This is great. It was a Sunday. It was beautiful. Everyone was out in the park. Um, 
there weren't even that many people yelling at you for like not wearing a mask all by yourself, 10 feet away from any other human being. And it was, you know, it seemed like it was gonna be great. The next day, um, we had the bird watching incident in Central Park <laughs> where, uh, and this was Memorial Day, where a woman named Amy Cooper, uh, whatever you think about that story, I think they were both basically a couple of Karens getting in each other's face in the park and it escalated and it was stupid uh, across the board. Like, why are you calling the cops on people and why are you telling people what to do with their dogs? Like, just leave each other alone, correct? This is my take. This is New York. Like, why are you even talking to anybody? So <laughs> <laughs> there's that. And then that night, George Floyd was killed. And I remember being at work and seeing the story the next morning. And I was like, well, we got to write about this. Um, you know, here's this incident. And then all hell broke loose for a very long time. Um, that was 10 weeks. That was exactly 10 weeks into this lockdown period. It was like 10 weeks to the day from March 16th. One reason why I, I noted January as the beginning of the crazy season is actually, mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't go into lockdown here until February, but I noticed a lot of things were just bubbling. I mean, you know, the continuance of Russiagate. I mean, look at this. I mean, Biden's president and they still don't shut up about it, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> they still don't shut up about it. But I think this situation with the lockdown, just to quickly make the infantilization point, was we were given some information about what we should do. We should flatten this curve. We should not all get sick all at once. We're going to have to face a tough time. Everybody, you know, buckle in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Okay, we now can make our own decisions. I can go take care of my mother or not, right? I can do, I can try and like educate my child from home. Like we had some options. There were some things we could all think about with regard to our lives and decisions that we wanted to make. Once they changed their guidance as to this flatten the curve thing, once they changed their guidance as to individuals being able to make their own educated, rational, reasonable and logical decisions about how they wanted to conduct their lives for themselves and their families. We started getting directives about how we must behave, not only how we must behave in order to curb contagion, but how we must behave in order to model that we were appropriately curbing this contagion. And that's the point at which we started to, we went from you know men into babies, right? We went from human beings with our own abilities to make decisions for our grown ass selves. And we became babies. Now we are babies who not only have to be told what to do, but have to be told how to do it in order to make sure that the government is easier able to tell other people what to do because we are also compliant. And that is the infantilization. And so when you had a bunch of people getting pissed off that a man was killed in police custody, right? Which sucks, but happens. And when this kind of thing happens in the US, typically when everybody has a job and someplace to be, we all scream about it. No one said that the, that the killing of Floyd was even remotely appropriate or acceptable with the exception of, I think one you know mayor in Mississippi who was like, well, maybe, and you're like, well, in including that this is Mississippi. This is the only thing that anybody that is saying anything against us um, or in favor, you know? So at that point, all of us children who yes, are now children who've been locked in our homes and told what to do by you know, our local governments, while we hear from our local governments that the federal government really should be the ones telling us what to do. And the federal government is just like, well, maybe we're not gonna just tell you what to do, um, which I respected very much because I don't appreciate being told what to do by authoritarian overlords. Then you had all of these kids who were tired of not having a job. They were tired of not being able to go to school. They were tired of not being able to see their friends or go to the movies or hang out on the corner or just, you know, like chill. And now you're killing people. So I think that's when the babies broke the gates. And by then we were babies. So that's, that's why I say infantilization.
Well, I think a lot of the craziness started with the media silence over COVID, which is why I indicate January, because there, there was little to no news about this being an epidemic, yeah? Mm -hmm. And you had no accountability, really. I mean, this has laid open the door for politicians who I do believe should be questioning why the WHO wasn't sounding alarms much sooner, uh, accountability yes. from certain governments. And, uh, yes. you know, I'm not a, a, a fan or a hater of the UN either way. I think it does certain of its missions do great things and certain of its missions do horrible things. Uh, mm -hmm. I wrote a report <clears throat> several years back on the disaster of the UN presence in Sri Lanka, uh, which led to human rights violations uh, over the Vanu region. I mean, there are, well, mm -hmm. now you just talk to anyone who's worked for the UN and they will have for every good story, a few bad stories. Now, that said, where was the media? No, no, what happened is we got pandemic media, right? It started in Italy with the lockdown, you're gonna die too. Boris's famous speech of, the media made fun of it saying you're all gonna die, but he might as well have said that. To, mm -hmm. you know, lockdown, I mean, for the first time in modern history, the West was emulating a Chinese model of handling something, <laughs> which is a huge LOL, right? Um, and yeah. no, no, no disparagement to China. I've lived and worked in China. There are many wonderful things, but I think the the virus mitigation efforts were heralded early on as a necessity, not just by governments, but by the media. And it seems like uh, the adults left the room. And when I have interviewed many scientists over the course of the past year who've been silenced, who are afraid to speak out, please don't use my name. Mm -hmm. Yes, that has been really quite stunning. The number of people that will not speak up because they are afraid of what will happen if they do um, would be enough people to mitigate the impact of anything happening for speaking up. Precisely. And then the secrecy of like the SAGE panels in the UK. And why do we have Lord Fauci, you know, in the US? I mean, there's a lot of questions to be asked about. And, and don't get me wrong, I don't think Fauci is a crackpot or anything like that. But why aren't there widely assorted of political variation panels, transparency, so people can see all sides to the arguments because the Great Barrington Declarants, both the signers and the three originators are, are well, the, the originators of the declaration are, are, <laughs> are, are very well-established scientists. And this mm -hmm. cannot be overstated because somehow, you know, we all watch TV and so many people think it's like Starsky and Hutch or something. And it's like, oh, but if they're not on TV, they must not be good. No, there, there are loads of, of TV series that never made it to the big screen for various reasons, but those are the ones that got chosen. I mean, we know this, we've all had jobs and not had jobs. And there were similar reasons for not having or having them. I mean, the reason why Fauci is doing what he is doing is partly his profession, partly his excellent, but there's other things in the mixture. And that's what's led to a lot of the, what the media calls conspiracy theorists or COVID denialists. Meanwhile, people who are called COVID denialists are not denying that there's a virus. They're just very skeptical about lockdown. And paradoxically, where the media went, as the British say, tits up, uh, was mm -hmm. when, this became like you, like you, I was like, oh, that sounds like a good idea to lock down. But I thought it was going to be a couple of weeks. Little did I know that this was going to be the go-to. And then the Darth Vader look we've been sporting since October. Like, is no health person, like psychologist, sociologist, public health, speaking out about the mental health effects of all this? Because I can tell you, my children have been gravely affected. We have all been gravely affected, parents. And so when I watched that video last week of a man going before um, some political panel, he was screaming and he was mm -hmm. really upset as a father. And I could hear his pain. I felt his pain because- The Virginia father before the school board. That's yes. it. This is mm -hmm. insane. Like there has been great evidence to show that 
kids are not getting sick with this virus. They are not mm -hmm. the high transmitters. Anyways, you know, look at the difference where you have schools out where you are and in other countries where schools are up and going, the virus has been diminishing, such as Italy. England yes. has also followed the model of shutting down schools. And California has the harshest of the uh, lockdown you know, mandates, et cetera, in the country, and they have the, um, their highest impacted right now. Where we are, schools are, um, you know, I'm no fan of our mayor, but he did get schools open on this blended learning model. He managed to push that through. And we have, um, we started the pandemic with a, a public school system, 1.1 million students. Uh, once the blended learning model came into effect, it was only able to serve 300,000 students. We have the largest school system in the country. Uh, it is now down to, I think, 960,000 students. As so many students have left, the students and families have left the school system. A lot of people have left the city. I think like 400,000, some people left New York City itself uh, and probably aren't coming back. We have also a lot of people went to private schools and charter schools and religious schools. And there's a wait list for any religious school in my area. Um, I had sent my son to a religious school previously, but his school closed um, for like stupid reasons. And so he's been in public school. Um, and I can't, you know, unless I leave New York City and go somewhere else and uproot my entire life, where I've, I've been here for 20 years, uh, I've been in the Northeast my entire life. Like I've pretty much never lived anywhere else. So, you know, say what you will, like everyone just move. And it's like, okay, I do live here. You know, this is where my home is. It's not that easy to just uproot. But, you know, I certainly keep considering it because if there are places where my child can thrive and not be, minimized and now he tells me that even when they're in school for three days a week because um not all the kids are in the school they're still doing remote learning but with the teachers in the room so when they ask questions they still have to ask questions on the google meet call they can't just ask questions of their teacher directly they still have to to all of their assignments on the Google Slides, on their computers, in the classroom, because there are so many kids who are not in the classroom. We're seeing that so many countries have taken a different approach and it, it's gonna take years before the science is collected to actually show which mitigation effort, if any, worked best. But it seems that the lives of children have been put on the back burner, the lie, what I like to call the lie, that they care, anyone cares about elderly. We have never seen evidence of any government in the West really caring about the elderly, but whatever. Mm -hmm. We've had to run with that lie because we, I just don't believe that this is about the elderly because in places, again, like Italy, the average age of death is 83 years old from, from COVID. 83, mm -hmm. that's the average age of death, period. So mm -hmm. uh, one must wonder why the mitigation efforts have taken the turn and why the media has not held responsible. Like, have you noticed anything CNN does or BBC that has to do with the virus? It becomes a love fest with either Dr. Fauci or, oh my God, the Chris Cuomo show, right? That was oh, insane. Yeah. I felt like we were being fed propaganda, basically, especially with the Chris. Yeah, and his brother, the governor. We have been fed a substantial amount of propaganda. And you mentioned Dr. Fauci. One look at Fauci's positions, for example, on schools, which is something I've been covering um, since the beginning because, I mean, my son is 10, um, he's in fifth grade, and I'm pretty sure he is learning absolutely nothing at school. You know, we have a um, math tutor set up. We have basically like a, you know, another tutor set up. A friend of mine is actually tutoring my son in mythology because I was like, 
this is something he's never going to get if I don't give it to him right now. You know, he needs to know the Greek myths and the, all of these things. I think that, um, I think that's important for understanding the trajectory of human thought. So I think that's really important and I wanted him to have that. Uh, but he has, you know, a private music lesson. Uh, and, you know, I, I do a substantial amount of like reading actual things with him. So parents have taken their children's education in hand in a lot of ways, which is a good thing. But Dr. Fauci, what he did in the first place, he said schools should open. And then a month later, he said schools should stay closed. And then he said um, schools should be outside. And then he said everyone needs to get vaccinated. And then the CDC said the other day, you know, we don't need all the teachers to get vaccinated before we can open schools. So it has been, um, it has been propagandized. No one knows what they're talking about. We're told to trust these experts, but these experts all have these underlying motivations. One crazy thing that I find is with the Biden administration. So Biden, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris um, uh, won the you know, election, but much of what they campaigned on and much of what they are currently legislating on is this concept that we have uh, several major crises that need to be addressed. And because these things have been classified as crises, the normal rules and procedures no longer apply because we just have to tackle these crises and get these things all fixed up before we can move on, apparently. That's why we've had massive government overreach in the first, what, like 20 days or whatever? Has it even been 20 days with Biden in office where he's signing federal orders, completely bypassing the concept of representation and democracy by doing so after he said in October, that you know a bunch of executive orders would be akin to what a dictator would do. So now we have, by his own admission, dictator Biden doing exactly the same thing. And these four crises that they are touting as the reasons to do anything are the uh, pandemic, the economy, which is tanked because of the mitigation efforts of our elected officials for the pandemic, climate change, and um, Oh, right, structural racism. So now we are being lectured about structural racism by people who have been in government for their entire adult lives, who are the establishment, who are the system, telling us that the system they have been upholding, furthering and advocating for, for their entire adult lives is systemically racist and horrible. In which case, why haven't they done a goddamn thing about it before now? I'm sorry. I'm very angry nope. about this. Well, I and don't I blame you. This is, a, like no, this is no, no, but this is the time of anger I'm finding. I mean, myself, I've been working on a piece about the 6th January protest in DC and I'm, mm -hmm. I'm overwhelmed by emotion as I write it. I'm also conflicted because I see propaganda central all over mainstream media, very few reporters, uh, appallingly few reporters from anywhere have covered the reasons why people were at the Capitol. We got four years of Russiagate, but no, yes, the tens of thousand lies, people on the, on the Capitol, that's dismissible because let's focus on the 1%, not even, because if you do the numbers, less than 1% of the people present who did a horrible thing to break in and I mean, it's a tragedy that people died, especially the police officer who should not have lost his life. I mean, the people who broke and entered, okay, terrible. Everyone acknowledges that, but let's, this never happened last summer. You and I spoke throughout last year during the Black Lives Matter riots where there was far more destruction in terms of even buildings being burned, uh, people being beaten up, and again, you know, I know some of the right wing media tried to make it into a paint with one brush business, but largely it wasn't portrayed that way in the media. It was, these were outliers, these were a few, but look at the Black Lives Matter. And there were, you know, politicians across the board taking the knee, showing solidarity. You never saw a similar response from the Democrats that we saw on 6 January to last year. And it bothers mm -hmm. me deeply because as a leftist, 
I, I, I know I have political opposition, but I'd like to know what they think, you know? And I, I worry mm -hmm. about a government that doesn't care what roughly half the country thinks. So we're headed for disaster politically in the United States with an arrogance of power. I mean, there is a piece in the New York Post that is quite uh, brilliant. It's about AOC, and it's a piece that's written by Michael Tracy about the mixture of politics and emotion. And he writes, perhaps AOC did genuinely fear for her life during the Capitol riot on January 6th, but since when are a politician's purported fears mindlessly validated by journalists instead of probed for factual and logical accuracy? And he goes on. Yeah, the other thing too about what AOC did is this is at least the second time that she has used her history of sexual assault for political gain. And she was taking down one of her colleagues who pointed out rightfully that there weren't um, any rioters in the Cannon office building where both of their offices are located. And that in fact, the person that um, Ocasio-Cortez feared turned out to be a police officer who was inquiring after her safety, perhaps he was doing so gruffly. Uh, there are people that go into policing and people that don't. So, you know, take from that what you will. But the, um, the, uh, her perspective was that, and she stated this in a, um, not only some 90 minute live video on Instagram, but in a fucking struggle session on the floor of the House of Representatives last night, uh, if you can believe that this is what's happening in a, a nation that is purported to be about reason, logic, um, and, and democratic representation, this kind of thing is what we have going on. Oh, my feelings, my feelings. I had a traumatic time and it was really hard. You know, I think a few years ago, there was some reporting, which I think was also questionable, however, that pointed out that most women have had the experience of either sexual assault or sexual harassment or what have you. Does that mean we're all supposed to cower in our bathrooms and our offices when you know there's no reason for it? Maybe it does, but it doesn't mean that we should use that experience and these traumatizing things for, for political gain and to you know try and shift the conversation away from half of America feeling entirely disenfranchised by the political um, representatives to being about your own personal stupid story. We all have stupid ass stories. You know, we're all traumatized. New York Post writer says this basically. He says, does the claim she advanced on Twitter, for instance, that Senator Ted Cruz personally conspired to have her murdered seem a tad far-fetched? Far Sorry, that's just her lived experience, born of trauma. It must therefore be respected and, to, and believed. And he goes on to say that DC is turning into some kind of bizarre public psychotherapy session in which the elected officials compete for who can exhibit the most overbearing narcissistic personality disorder, which is fitting given that Trump, previously the undisputed champion by that metric, has been relegated to semi-retirement in Palm Beach. I mean, it's a brilliant piece, which you should read because this is sort of encapsulated the way I feel about the left. The left is no longer operating from facts. And this is a problem because last summer when the first statue went down, I was I just looked askance. Second statue, I was like, mm -mm. We, these should be public discussions. We can't have democracy by fiat because that's not democracy. Mm -hmm. And we can't have one half of the populace making those choices, like them or hate them. It doesn't matter. The left would never have put up if Jesse Helms had gone into any of the galleries where Mapplethorpe's work was and personally tore them mm -hmm. down. They would never have had it. But we are living yeah. what I compare to the moral majority from the 80s, but worse. <laughs> right. Rudy Giuliani actually did go to the Brooklyn Museum of Art and condemn in person Chris Ophelia's paintings that were representative of the um, Blessed Mother with um, chunks of or little balls of elephant dung on them. And he looked like an idiot going in there yelling about paintings, which, I mean, to be frank, if you look at the painting, they were gorgeous. 
you know, Andre Serrano's Piss Christ, which also Jesse Helms was pissed about back then, and Karen Finley and all of these people, this was actually pretty spectacular artwork. And what's so interesting now um, is that those, that, that realm of the GOP, which I think is currently represented by Mitch McConnell and his, you know, creepy crowd, um, they're still out there, but the free speech concept has come back, has come into the conservative side through the whole MAGA thing. Um, and now what you have is if you are, if you are a hundred percent on board with all speech being free with all peaceable assembly being allowable, you know, with actually the whole first amendment, which is a pretty cool thing. You can petition your government for, you know, redress of grievances. You can peacefully assemble, you know, you can speak your mind, you can have your own religion. Um, there's one more, there's five in there. I always forget one of them. It's always a different one too. But anyway, this is the point. This is the point of the country. Um, James Madison knew that, like this was, you know, Thomas Jefferson, these guys that are now, you're not allowed to talk about them because they were racist. Uh, and apparently, you know, you can never attribute a good idea if somebody had a couple of really bad ones. So without upholding the Bill of Rights, without upholding our constitutional rights, there's no point to having this country. It's just another stupid country if we don't have that stuff. That's the only thing that makes this a country that you know is relevant and matters and is actually forward thinking in terms of the human project. That's it. Without that, why, you know, why ever leave Britain? Why not just be another commonwealth like all the others? You're listening to Savage Minds and we hope you're enjoying the show. I'd like to extend a huge thanks to Sam Gent, who helped set up the sound system for our show. Please consider signing up for yoga classes with Sam at samgentyoga.co.uk. Also, please consider subscribing to our show. We depend on listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Certainly, we've seen the partisanship adhering even more tightly to its political lines this past year. And I find that deeply disturbing. I actually hated Fox News after 9-11 and I found myself grasping for it during the elections because they seem to have the more sane coverage of the US elections. And I mean, what has gone on where Fox News has become the adult in the room? Yeah, exactly. And they, they barely are. I mean, they keep, um, they keep going back on what they say too. Oh, of course. Of course. It's, it's not like they're there to be emulated, but it's, it's shocking to me when I see CNN and, and look what happened yesterday on Twitter. I don't know if you followed the uh, ACLU statement on. Yes. I'm thinking of writing about that. Okay. Well, this is yeah. insane. The idea <laughs> yeah. that kids, uh, girls in high schools and middle schools should be competing against boys who self-ID as girls, um, mm -hmm. which is silly because they're boys. Um, and how this isn't on the one hand creating a traumatic transition of, of the body for these children, which has been now recently documented this week. We have now proof that from the Tavistock in London, that the use of hormone blockers on kids has devastating physical effects. This came out from the very clinic that has seen an exodus of 40 plus professionals recently. And that's one thing. So the mention is, okay, kids transitioning, we won't even question that. And girls having their entire <clears throat> hopes and dreams for not just scholarships, although that's something in the US, especially where tuition isn't cheap, but mm -hmm. where they have their hopes and dreams crushed by boys who are going through puberty. And the ACLU comes out with bat shit hokum 
about alleged science. It's not science. And the, the attorney for the ACLU who puts that out, Shay Strangio, is herself. Mm -hmm. Uh, she identifies as transgender. I guess a woman in a suit is a man. Well, if you had seen me in New York City in the late 80s and throughout the 90s, that's what I wore. <laughs> sure. Yeah, this concept that we are our packaging is quite anathema to the entire civil rights and feminist movements. Where do we go from here then? I mean, in terms of our jobs as journalists, we're covering these subjects. We're covering far, far more subjects, in fact. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard often to place pieces. Like I can't pitch on most topics nowadays to the left media unless it's <laughs> repeating some kind of mantra, <laughs> which I find depressing. Um, and I, I find it alarming that the left is not even conscious of this enough to make changes. They hear the pushback, but I'm not seeing any publications on the left actually moving on that. I mean, have you seen it? No, I haven't. And I think that this has to do with um, a feeling. Uh, I, I think that ha this has to do with the narrative control that has come into play on the left, particularly in recent decades because what started as a political correctness in the late 80s and early 90s, where there are uh, the appropriate ways to say things and the inappropriate ways to say things, has morphed into um, every aspect of discourse. So things just kept getting added to that. Now the PC thing, um, you know, I was in high school at the time when that really hit in my life, right? Like that's sort of when that was, was early 90s. And there was this, um, you know, you'd hear people say, if you're racist, I just can't talk to you, right? And certainly at the time, that seemed even a little bit reasonable. You know, if someone is dumb enough to be a racist in the 1990s, in, you know, the middle of metropolitan Philadelphia, where I lived at the time, um, then what are you even supposed to do with this person? Right, like how, like you've had ample time. We've had an entire amazing civil rights movement. There's no reason to think someone is lesser than you because of their skin color. And at the time, the concept of racism was pretty clearly an individual crime, right? It was like an individual problem. So if you're a racist, that's about you and your personal treatment of people who are of a different race than you, right? So that was that idea. That kind of even made sense at the time. Um, but that morphed into every other area of discourse and conversation so that what you had eventually is what we have now, where it's not just, if you're racist, I can't talk to you. It's if you do not believe in the appropriate way on a series of about 50 dozen issues, then I can't talk to you. There's no room for conversation. There's only room to press the given narrative. And that given narrative now, I mean, let's, let's parse it, right? Um, there's the racism thing, which like, no one thinks racism is good. So, you know, so in no particular order, there was believe all women. That was a thing, you had to go by that. There was, um, you know, climate change is human caused and humans are the sinners and they need to repent by passing masses of legislation and policy changes in order to appease the gods of the weather into treating us better, apparently. Um, you know, because that's entirely, the weather has never changed before prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, which isn't to say that there's not some merit in that, but it's not, it's not everything. Do you know what I mean? Then there's the uh, boys are girls and girls are boys thing. There's the, you know, it's all based on your identity and your chosen identity, but there are only some identities that you can choose. And you have to be very careful as you pick your way through these ideological minefields to make sure that you're choosing the correct path. Otherwise, you're going to be blasted by the left, kicked out of, you know, any sort of polite society and attributed to being a Capitol Hill rioter. And that's where we are. 
So anyone who disagrees with the going leftist line in the U.S. is a rioter who hates AOC and wants her to cry. Well, the biggest worry for me is, is where is the left in terms of its actual mission to protect <laughs> the interests of the poor, to look out through a class analysis at what is happening? That's completely gone. Mm -hmm. And if anything, it's the right taking up this mantle. Shocking. Yes, it is. Yes. And so then what you have is you have radical feminists teaming up with conservatives on these very few issues. Um, because what's at stake is the nature of reality itself. And then the rad femmes are discredited by the left because they have sided with conservatives on one issue. Rad femmes are still, you know, opposed to all the things rad femmes are oppo opposed to. Um, but because they are willing to work across the aisle with conservatives, they are demonized. It's, it's shocking to watch these incredibly leftist women. Well, it is and it isn't. I tell you something, Libby. I've been doing the, the gender debate for, it's going on nine years now. And I came in it when only two people in the UK were writing about it, Julie Birchill and, and Suzanne Moore. And uh, there had been another journalist who had written a piece years before who then apologized and sort of stepped away from that. And mm -hmm. it was funny because the journalist who stepped away from it later on came back to, you know, get in on the debate, which I think was great. But she makes her bread and butter from the right wing media, yet had no compunction about calling out women as right wing everything Nazis, Tommy Robinson moniker wears. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had it, you saw it all. And yet, this very writer makes her living from the right. So, I mean, anyone, I, I'm not on the right, but I'm fully aware that I've had to publish with right-wing media about the gender debate because the left and even centrist media is not having it, not at all, not. In fact, when I made a pitch to Slay about the science behind this, a very nice piece, the response I got, I almost wanted to tweet it out because it was so clear how indoctrinated the editor was of the science section. They are not going to have anything that does not confirm their bias. And this is mm -hmm. what I thought journalism was supposed to be working against, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, in the day, remember when Christopher Hitchens had the column in The Nation? And I think we sort of need mm -hmm. to bring back that kind of devil's advocate form of journalism where both sides of debates are held and where journalists job is not to start, you know, pitching their, their forks at people, but rather to take the temperature and to speak to both sides and start reporting it properly, because I'm not seeing that. I really am not, which is why COVID skepticism, as they call it, but it's just people or COVID denialism, but it's really COVID skepticism is out there. People are not feeling they're being told the truth. And can you blame them? No, people, are, people don't feel they're being told the truth because they are not being told the truth. We're supposed to intone the truth. We're supposed to intuit the truth and believe the truth that goes along with the narrative peddling propagandists. And it's just not, it's just not real. And it's, you know, I, I work in media, I'm an editor at the Post Millennial. Um, you know, I write for the Federalist, I'm a senior contributor there. And there's, you know, it's interesting being on the other side and seeing just how much goes into putting out a publication and what's required of that. Um, because there's so many different variables um, to what stories you cover and how you cover it and all of that stuff. But one thing that's true is that the people who are running these media outlets are not always thinking about how to um, give the public the best information that they need. And they certainly haven't been for a long time. That's actually the nature of the newspaper business. You know, you have to give true and accurate information, but you also have to sell newspapers. So when you have um, this narrative war going on in the media, which honestly, I think journalists are having a lot of fun getting angry and um, getting hot under the collar and yelling at each other on Twitter, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly um, an entertaining way to pass the time. Uh, 
but it doesn't do that much for public understanding. And it also doesn't do that much for a public that is being denied and has been for some time denied an education that treats them as though they are critically thinking individuals who are capable of forming their own opinion. So when you have this like sort of clusterfuck of um, uh, an, a, a poorly educated populace, uh, a media that is pushing vying narratives in every conceivable way that they tell a story, um, from choosing what story to tell to how they tell it to the headlines, the images to you know outrage meters and all of that stuff. And then when you mix that in with a population that has been infantilized by their government, you have a bunch of people that don't know what's real. And so you have to subscribe to an ideology and then believe the ideology's interpretation of reality. Otherwise, how are you supposed to get through the world? Um, and that's just not how we should live as human beings. We shouldn't subscribe to a given ideology and then believe all the tenets of that ideology. That's what I thought we were casting off when we when we cast off the, you know, shackles of religion. And I'm I'm a person of faith, as they say here in the states. Uh, but this is um, this kind of religious schema, I guess. Um, is being used across, um, you know, across these political ideologies, and we're told that everything is political. It's a, uh, you know, you caught me pretty early on a Friday morning, and I'm feeling pretty disillusioned this week. So I don't know, um, I don't know how we weather something like this. You know, my kid is this super smart kid. Uh, he's not like super academic or anything. He's just like actually this smart kid. <laughs> and, you know, he's, he's saying things to me, like, I'm glad a bunch of my life was before the pandemic. So I know what normal is supposed to be like, um, you know, or I wouldn't be surprised if I walked outside this morning and everyone was zombified because that's just what I've come to expect now, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Um, and I think that in so many ways, what's missing is a, a, a cultural outlet that is not about ideological indoctrination. These kids that are coming up now need to, um, someone needs to tell them that these rules don't apply to them and they don't have to ask permission to be themselves or be who they are or you know, undertake to make big art projects or whatever, you know, it's... Um, well, it's actually yeah. interesting when we start bringing children into the equation and we look at what, let's say, the nonsense the ACLU put out four facts yesterday about trans girls are girls. Fact one, trans girls are girls. Fact two, trans athletes do not have an unfair advantage of sports. Fact three, including trans athletes will benefit everyone. And fact four, trans people belong on the same teams as other students. Of course, these are all red herrings because no female sports person has ever said uh, trans males should not, you know, men who identify as transgender should not be participating in sports. They're just saying, get to the men's team where you belong. Now, you know, people call that bigoted, they call that transphobic, but then let's get to the kids, your children, mine, who are suffering under the weight of lockdown of uh, in the last year, this ridiculous distance learning, which I would just call torture. And, you know, all of a sudden, kids don't matter. So let's just recap here. Kids right. learning, <laughs> no, no, nada. And boys who want to race against girls, yay, you're so brave, go girl, you know? And it's diametrically opposed behavior. It's insanity. And then I keep thinking back to, because the feminists have been taking, you know, issue with Michel Foucault and I, had Heather Brunskill-Evans on the show. Both of us are great lovers of Foucault. And mm -hmm. we're like, he had nothing to do with this. You know, read Judith Butler. Her, her inspiration, by the way, is Hegel. Um, she mm -hmm. refers to him. But the reality is that Foucault was about cracking the nut of what makes societies want to sector up the city of Paris during the plague. What makes it want to draw and quarter 
a man in the middle of the public square for torture. And he goes through mm -hmm. these in all of his work, Discipline and Punish is probably the most readable of works. And, and so I'm thinking of all the theorists who might've foreseen what we're living today. And I think of Jean Baudrillard, who in one of his books- I love he Baudrillard. Yeah, yeah he talks about uh, Disney World. And he mm -hmm, says, he sure does. Disney World is like this paradox of American identity. It's this world full of fakeness everywhere. And the only single real thing is the parking lot. And he goes on to say, all this created by a man who lays in negative 30 degrees centigrade awaiting to be revivified because he's cryogenized at the moment. And mm -hmm. I just thought that that description of the United States fits not just the US in a sense, it's fitting our, our very reality now where people are refusing reality. I mean, this bullshit by the ACLU is a huge slight to women's humanity. I reject anyone saying, I feel like a woman. What the hell are you saying? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And yet you can't question that. And no media person on the left is questioning that because they're just saying brave over and over. It's the recycle. We should have like the, the super eight ball, but every part of the triangle that pops up in it is brave. Or you go girl, mm -hmm. or I'm so proud of you, or brave again. And, uh, mm -hmm. and then that, and then switch to, you know, the lie we're all living, which is we're protecting the elderly because we've always loved them so much and not. And uh, kids education is so important. So let's give you this camera, you know? Right. It, we're living in the most screwed up time of my life. Yes, I agree. That is definitely the most screwed up time of our lives. I just, you know, and I'm thinking, well, how did we arrive to have politicians so inept? like? And I also wonder with the, the rent strikes that some people have tried to start around the world. There was one here in, in, in uh, Bologna, for instance, or in Paris, there were various groups of people starting up the rent strikes. The laws, however, when they first got enacted to protect people fiscally came out for mortgage holders, not for renters. It took most countries months to get to the renters. Mm -hmm. And I follow a group on Facebook located in New York City who they are fighting the rental problem there because people will not be able to pay back months and months and months of rent. What's going to happen there with that? What is going to happen? Yeah, I don't know. Um, it's sort of dodgy because the um, people don't want to pay rent, right? Because they don't have any jobs because the government took their jobs. So the government said, you don't have to pay rent, but then the people who own the buildings where the rent is being paid are also saying that, you know, they need to pay their mortgages. So then the government says, okay, you don't have to pay your mortgage. So then what happens is nobody's paying back the loans. And if nobody's paying back the loans, then the banks can't use that money to lend more money. And suddenly the economy comes to a drastic standstill. Uh, so that, you know, so that's, that's not going to be amazing. <laughs> like, you know, that's going to stifle any new entrepreneurship in real estate. Um, yeah. And we have so, we have like a, uh, so many rental properties in the, in the, in New York right now, uh, a lot of places, these luxury apartment buildings are offering, um, uh, they're offering like one month free or whatever else. And so I was looking at it, um, and the rents are still ridiculously high in a lot of in a lot of parts of the city. So it's very, it's very weird. I I keep wondering what's going to happen. You know, I was in New York um, when Giuliani was the mayor, and he basically revamped the whole city. It was pretty drastic. You know, it was like it went from. Uh, you know, it went from like being able to buy drugs on any street corner downtown to being able to really like being really having to <laughs> go out of your way um, to find find drug dealers on the street. So it was pretty interesting um, from that perspective at the time. And then it did turn into once you had Giuliani cleaned up all of the crime and then you had Bloomberg injecting masses of money. You know, we had like a whole boom thing and we had a situation where a year ago I would have been perfectly comfortable walking home tipsy at 4 a.m. 
by myself in downtown New York. Uh, and now you go out, you barely see anyone on the street. It's, um, we're having like broad daylight muggings. Uh, and so a couple of things can happen. One, it could be a time when um, arts comes back in a, in a big old dirty way, which, you know, dirty art is my favorite art, but, or it could just become like, I mean, maybe it's going to be both, you know, I keep looking at it being like, do I want to be raising my kid in the New York of the 1970s? Because I think that's what we are soon facing. And I wonder, there was a lot of vibrancy to that, but. Well, I think New York is heading for the 1970s redux, you know? Yeah, I think so too. So too. Well, let's hope there is more public art. Maybe graffiti makes a comeback. <laughs> yeah, something. But um, I am concerned that the media still is not covering the class issues. We, if I were a Martian and I had landed on planet Earth, let's say a month ago, I would have thought the following: that women are a point decimal of a, the percent of the population, that trans people represent 51% of the population, mm -hmm. that uh, people don't care about their children uh, and are having a nervous breakdown simultaneously, and that governments don't really exist. Because it's very strange what we're seeing, this kind of, I mean, a lot of people criticize the hideout of Biden in the last months up to the election. But we're seeing this very strange government. I feel like I'm watching Star Wars when I see him give his little announcements. It's always the worst. <laughs> there's no debate. There's no discussion. And then at the same time, Capitol Hill's trying to make illegal. I mean, what are they doing to that, that one senator from the South? Trying to bar people with certain opinions about who are even oh, doubtful about the election. Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, she's a she's a she's a House representative from Georgia, um, who uh, is definitely part of the MAGA side of the GOP. And what's interesting about the MAGA side of the GOP is that um, it brought Trump into office uh, as something of a fuck you to the rest of the country. I mean, let's be honest. And those people who that those like 74 million people or whatever who voted for Trump are as derided by the establishment Republicans as they are by the establishment and progressive left. So when you see someone like, you know, uh, Representative Green having views that are, um, you know, pretty far out there with regard to, I don't know, I haven't even looked at all the stuff she apparently said. Um, but when you have her views that are like that far out there and she's hated by so many people on the right and the left, that makes me want to hear what she has to say. Um, not because I'm, you know, thinking I'm going to agree with it or whatever, but because I believe she and those more so the constituents that elected her have a right to their voice and have a right to choose their own representative. And I don't think it stands to the rest of Congress to disenfranchise Green's constituents because they don't like what she has to say. Her constituents like her. Her constituents voted for her. It's up to them. It's not up to, you know, the morality police in Congress to tell a representative's constituents who they can and cannot have represent them in the people's house. It's absurd. But then this is the media failing us again, because in writing I, about the 6th of January, we're not seeing any coverage about why those people were there. And it's all because it's put down to personal more. I mean, religion really has reentered the left because mm -hmm. it's about those people are not worthy. They are sinners. They should not be discussed. I'm mm -hmm. talking about the tens of thousands of peaceful protesters, many of whom sent me films and photos. Yeah. Why is the left, why is major media, which isn't even left left, it's center left, why are they not covering the peaceful voices of 6th January? Um, I think that this question has a um, misapprehension at its core, 
which is that we uh, grew up in a time when we believed that media was a trusted um, advocate for truth and you know, accurate representations of reality. And I don't think we necessarily should think of it in those terms anymore. I don't think that for the most part, even our biggest legacy outlets, uh, you know, I spent every Sunday reading the New York Times cover to cover for years. And the New York Times itself is now ideologically driven. The Washington Post is ideologically driven. Uh, so many of these outlets are, whether they're the outlets you agree with or the outlets that you disagree with. It's more important, uh, if I may use the cliche, you know, now more than ever, to impress upon people the requirement for their own selves to learn to think critically, learn how to make decisions and form opinions by narrowing everything down to identity, we are taking away people's um, individuality and saying, right? I mean, it looks like an individual determination. I am this specific identity. That makes me an individual. As an individual with this specific identity, I, I identify with this larger group of people who also identify as I identify. Together, we have come up with an ideological perspective that as a member of this group, I now subscribe to. And then you don't question it, right? You believe you're an individual while actually being manipulated by a groupthink that you're not even aware is happening. And it goes back to the class thing, as you mentioned, because identity has replaced class. And the reason it's done that is because a lot of people who identify with an oppressed group, right, um, are upper class. And they don't wanna deal with the class issues. They want to keep their tenureships. They wanna keep their, you know, editorships. They wanna keep their book deals and still be oppressed. And the only way that you can do that is with an identity group uh, you know, structure. You can't do that and actually, you know, like you're not oppressed if you're getting like book deals and Netflix shows and professorships, you're not oppressed. But if you say that you subscribe to the ideology of a group that is oppressed and you identify with that oppressed group, suddenly no one's asking to see your bank statement. No one's asking why you're not forking over money to make sure that other people in your oppressed group are getting, you know, the things you purport to say that they need.